Now I want to hear the other side of the story, I say to my group. Can you remember being punished as a child? Did it inspire you to change your bad behavior? A big grin spread over Michael's face. Clearly, he was having some fond memories of past misadventures. Oh, no. Getting in trouble was much more fun than punishment was bad. It was totally worth it to be spanked. My mom didn't hit that hard. Tony looked like she was trying to suppress a smirk. I remember getting grounded for lying about a sleepover. I learned to lie better the next time. I was pretty sneaky. When I got older, I used to climb out the window. I don't actually remember getting punished as a child, said Sarah. I guess I was that good little girl who always wanted to please. But I can tell you that the kids in my preschool who get put in the timeout corner and lose privileges are the same ones week after week. I have to admit, it doesn't seem to change their attitude. One time my little sister and I shoplifted candy together, said Maria. My mom found the candy and punished me, but my sister got off free because she was younger. I had to miss my best friend's birthday party. I remember being outraged at the injustice of it. I don't think I shoplifted again, so I guess you could say it worked. But I was angry at my sister for a long time. I got back at her. I would tease her until she tried to hit me so she'd get in trouble with my mom. Anna looked distressed. I hate to say it, but punishment did work for me. My father didn't spank softly. He hit hard, with a belt. Sometimes my mother made me kneel on rice with bare knees. It was painful and humiliating. It stopped me from doing anything that I thought might get me in trouble, but I was a miserable, terrified little kid. I don't want my own kids to feel that way. These experiences illustrate some of the problems with punishment. While it may produce quick results, it can lead to many pitfalls. When you've committed yourself to using punishment to solve a conflict, and the punishment isn't harsh enough to be effective, you're in a dangerous position. You may find yourself locked in to using harsher and harsher punishments. The punishment doesn't address the underlying problem. A child in preschool who has trouble socializing with other children may be punished for shoving or biting, but that doesn't help him acquire the social skills he needs to get along with his peers. Often a strong-willed child who is punished becomes more determined to defy authority. Studies find that kids who are punished are more likely to misbehave in the future. Punishment actually increases the undesired behavior. Punishment can distract a child from the important lesson she needs to learn. Instead of feeling an urge to fix the problem or make amends, punishment prompts a child to think selfishly. What television shows will she be forced to miss? What dessert will she have to give up? She's likely to be filled with resentment instead of remorse. Even when punishment does work to eliminate an unwanted behavior, the victory may come at a high cost. A child who is punished harshly can develop other problems, from fear and timidity to aggression toward other children. And finally, the punishments we mete out to our children 
give them a blueprint for how to approach conflict in their lives. We have to ask ourselves if we want them to use these methods on their peers and siblings. This last point was graphically illustrated to me when Dan, at four years old, kept poking his little brother in the head, no matter how much I explained that this was not a pleasant sensation. I could not fathom the pleasure he took in this activity. Finally, at my wit's end, I yelled, Dan, you are not understanding me. I have to show you what this feels like. Fueled by the intensity of my frustration, I gave him a forceful poke on the head. Do you like that? He cried, no. Okay, then. Don't do it to your brother. Point made. The very next day, I heard his logical little voice from the living room speaking calmly to his younger brother. Sam, I have to show you what this feels like. Hysterical wailing from Sam. Okay, wrong point made. It is kind of stunning how much our kids really do want to emulate us and how much they focus on our overall strategy. It's a tired old phrase, but true. Children will do as you do, not as you say. The key question is, how do we want our children to approach conflict? Do we want them to think about what they should do to the other person, take something away, or inflict pain? Or do we want them to think, what can I do to solve this problem? Sounds a bit idealistic, doesn't it? What about that child careening through the parking lot and shoving his sister on the playground? What can a parent actually do with all this philosophy in the face of an out-of-control child? We need practical tools to put philosophy into action. Here's how it might look when we apply our tools to the young ruffian who pushed his little sister at the top of the slide. Tool number one. Express your feelings. Strongly. Hey, I don't like to see people being pushed. Sometimes that will be enough. You've avoided the command. Stop that right now. You've avoided character attacks. Bad boy, that's mean. You've avoided threatening. If you don't stop it right now, there'll be no ice cream for you. You stayed away from all those reactions that cause natural resistance. But it still might not be enough to stop your wild child. He's having fun, and he doesn't truly understand the possible repercussions of pushing a little kid at the top of the slide. Heck, he was just helping her get going. Tool number two. Show your child how to make amends. Your sister got scared when she was pushed. Let's do something to make her feel better. Do you want to offer her some apple slices? Or do you think she'd like to play with your sand bucket? The quickest way to change a child's behavior and attitude is to get him involved in fixing his mistake. The best way to inspire a child to do better in the future is to give him an opportunity to do better in the present. A punishment makes him feel bad about himself. Making amends helps him feel good about himself and helps him to see himself as a person who can do good. Tool number three. 
Offer a choice. We're going to give the slide a rest for now. I can see you're in no mood to wait for a turn. You can swing on the swings or you can dig a big hole in the sand. You decide. Sometimes a youngster needs help to redirect his energy. A choice can help him move on to a more acceptable activity. Tool number four. Take action without insult. If your little firecracker continues to pose a hazard to himself and others, you may have to take action. We're heading home. We'll try the playground another day. I'm too worried about children getting hurt right now. Aha! So you do believe in consequences, I hear you cry. What was all that fine talk about how consequences are really punishments and punishments are bad? Here's how I see it. I take action in order to protect, not to punish. I take action to protect my child from harm, to protect others from being harmed physically or emotionally, to protect property, and to protect my own feelings. I may have to snatch my child's arm in the parking lot or require that he ride in the stroller to protect him from being hit by a car. I'm buckling you in so you won't get hurt by a car. I know you don't like it. As soon as we get out of the parking lot, you can be free. I may have to remove him from the playground to protect other children from being hurt by his rambunctious behavior. I'm taking you to the grassy field. Let's bring the ball. We need a place to play where a person can run around without worrying about bumping into anybody. I may take away the stroller to prevent him from breaking it. I'm putting the stroller in the car so it won't get broken. Let's find something else to play with, something tough that can take a good banging. I may even place a moratorium on trips to the playground until we come up with a better plan to protect myself from a stressful outing. I'm not taking you to the playground today. I don't want to end up getting mad and yelling again. We need to come up with a new plan first. Notice that we are giving a very clear message to the child that we are not acting to punish, but to protect. We don't say, you behaved badly at the park yesterday, so you don't get to go today. We don't say, you were too rough with the stroller, so you've lost the privilege of pushing it. We focus on safety and peace of mind for the present and solutions for the future. It's a lesson kids can take forward with them into adulthood. When you have a problem with an adult, say, for example, you have a friend who's always borrowing things and returning them late or broken or not at all, you probably don't think about how you can punish that person. You think about how to respectfully protect yourself. You don't say, now that you've given me back my jacket with a stain on it and broken the side mirror of my car, I'm going to slap you. That would be assault. Or lock you in your room for an hour. That would be imprisonment. Or take away your smartphone. That would be theft. You'd probably say something like, I don't feel comfortable lending you clothes anymore. I get very upset when they come back damaged. And I can't lend you my car, which I just got repaired. I need to have it in working condition. In fact, 
I'd appreciate some help with the repair bill. Your friend may very well learn a lesson from your actions. He learns that you have a limit and that he has stepped over that limit. If he wants to do any borrowing in the future, he'll have to change his behavior. Not because you did something to make him suffer, but because you acted firmly to protect yourself. Of course, children are different from adults, and sometimes a whole lot wackier. Here are more examples of how to take action with children when all your other tools have failed. I'm putting the blocks away for now. I can't allow throwing. I'm too worried about broken windows and broken heads. I'm separating you from your brother. I can see how angry you are, and I don't want either of you to get hurt. We're leaving the library. I can't let books be pushed off the shelves. I'm putting the food away. I can see you're not hungry, and I don't like food to be smeared on clothing. Taking action to protect yourself and those around you is an essential life skill for adults and a powerful way to model for our children how to deal with conflict. This approach is a world apart from the tactic of thinking up ways to cause discomfort in the hope that a lesson will be learned. But what about that lesson, you ask? What about the next time we go to the park? If I just keep gently preventing my child from causing harm to himself, to others, or to property, what is going to inspire him to change his behavior? With no punishment, isn't he getting away with it? We have a tool for you that will be more effective than punishment in motivating your child to change his behavior in the future. This tool is invaluable when you have an ongoing problem that resists a quick fix. It can't always be used in the moment. Some situations are unsalvageable. But, as you drag your child screaming and kicking from a store or playground, you will have this comforting thought in the back of your mind. Later, when things calm down, I'm going to try problem solving, and the next time will be better. Here's the way it works. Tool number five. Try problem solving. One of the keys to successful problem solving is to wait for a time when the mood is right. It can't be done in the midst of frustration and anger. After the storm has passed, invite your child to sit down with you. The first step of problem solving is to acknowledge your child's feelings. This is the most important step and the most frequently skipped Without acknowledging feelings first, you won't get far. Your child needs to know that you can see things from his point of view and understand what he's feeling, or he won't be open to any of the suggestions that follow. I can see that you don't like your hand held in the parking lot. You'd rather be free to run. You certainly don't like having to wait a long time to go down the slide. It's annoying to be blocked by a little sister who can't decide whether to go down or not. If your child has something to add, continue to listen and reflect feelings. Oh, so you hate it when I squeeze your hand, and you wish you could have the playground all to yourself sometimes. The second step is to describe the problem 
Here's where you can talk about your feelings or other people's feelings. Unfortunately, this part has to be short. You can't go on and on or you'll sink the ship before it sails. The problem is, I worry about cars hitting children in the parking lot. Being pushed at the top of the slide can be scary to a little kid. She could fall and get hurt. The third step is to ask for ideas. For this step, you're going to need paper and pencil. Be sure to write down all ideas, no matter how outrageous. If you start rejecting ideas at this stage of the game, oh no, that will never work. Your child will quickly lose interest. As a matter of fact, it's nice to start out by putting some truly preposterous ideas on your list. We need some ideas so we can go back to the park and have a good time without people getting mad or scared or hurt. What can we do? Make the cars disappear. Fly over the cars like a bird. Instead of holding hands, hold on to a belt. Instead of holding hands, hold on to the stroller and help push it. Pretend mommy is lost. Hold her sleeve and lead her through the parking lot. Squirt water on the slide so nobody else will use it. Put a sign on the slide that says, no babies, they can use the swings. If a kid is scared, offer to go down the slide together. If the slide is crowded, go to the climbing house. If the slide is crowded, jump down from the ladder, get out the bucket and shovel, and go play in the sandbox. The fourth step is to decide which ideas you both like and cross out the ones that neither of you like. Hmm, it would be nice to fly like a bird, but I don't think I can do that. How about helping push the stroller? Oh, you like the idea of leading me by the sleeve. Let's circle that one. I guess we can't really put water on the slide. That would make people mad. And we can't keep the babies away. The park is for everyone. How about the climbing house idea? The last step is to try out your solutions. Get a magnet, stick your list of ideas on the refrigerator, and wait for opportunity to strike. Bring your list to the park. Take it out before you leave the car and double-check the plan with your child. So you're ready to lead me to the playground? Okay. Grab my sleeve. I'm ready to follow. Chances are that if your child participated in coming up with solutions, he'll be eager to try them out. You'll find yourself at the park, feeling good with a cooperative child who is getting valuable practice in solving the thorny problems of life. You skipped the whole punishment phase of the parenting journey and went directly to solving the problem. But what if it doesn't work? Then it's back to the drawing board. You need new ideas. The beauty of problem solving is that, unlike punishment, it offers endless possibilities. If you're committed to punishment and your child continues to misbehave, all you can do is punish more severely. You might hit him harder or take away more privileges, but chances are you won't get any closer to your goal of having a cooperative child.
and you'll create a lot of ill will in the process. With problem solving, you can always go back and brainstorm some more. When you put your heads together, you're bound to come up with something that will work for both of you. Very important point. If nothing is working, you may have to reconsider your basic expectations. When children are not ready to behave in a way that is safe for themselves and others, we default to managing the environment. We don't expect babies to keep their fingers out of electrical sockets. We cover them. We don't build playgrounds next to highways and expect toddlers not to run into traffic after a rolling ball. We fence in the playground. We don't leave bowls of chocolate bars in the middle of the table and expect preschoolers, or their parents, to eat just one. We give one to each person and put the rest out of sight. We give babies board books so they won't rip the pages out with their chubby, determined fingers. If grandma has a house full of fascinating, delicate china dolls displayed on low shelves, you don't expect to spend a relaxing time there with your two-year-old. You invite grandma to visit her granddaughter at your house. Library Mayhem When Dan was almost two, the library was a very interesting place. He loved books. No, not in that way. Not to read. He loved the physics of shelved books. His favorite activity was to race down the aisles, pushing on the spines of the books as he sped by, so that the books on the other side fell down with a series of satisfying clunks. Then he'd race down the next aisle to see the result of his experiment with mass and gravity. I decided that library visits would be suspended for a while until my little scientist became more interested in what was inside of books. Blocked. On Dan's second birthday, my parents proudly presented us with a wonderful gift, a full set of large wooden blocks. I'm sure they envisioned a creative explosion of architecture, castles, skyscrapers, roadways with bridges and tunnels for toy cars to traverse, entire cityscapes. Dan had other ideas. He found it fascinating to launch these heavy rectangular projectiles into the air. He thrilled to the soaring arc and the crashing finale. After trying numerous approaches, I conceded defeat. In the interest of protecting the structural integrity of our windows and our heads, I packed the blocks in boxes and stored them in the basement. They reemerged when Dan was three. Construction projects resumed, now firmly rooted to the ground. A wonderful gift. It's all in the timing. But let's assume that you are asking for behavior that is age-appropriate and within your child's skill set. Here are some real-life examples of parents using alternatives to punishment. Although you may wonder if skipping the punishment lets a child off the hook and deprives him of learning to take responsibility for his actions, you'll notice that in all these examples, the opposite is true. In this first story, learning that he has the power to make amends gives a child the courage to face a mistake. Michael's story, 
truck full of trouble. I walked into the living room to find that Jamie had been using his dump truck to transport flour. There was a huge mess all over the floor. I yelled, who made this big mess? Jamie said, trouble, and ran and hid behind the couch. I saw that I had scared him, and that made me feel bad. So I said, oh no, we have a problem. What should we do to fix it? He stuck his head out and yelled, water. He ran to the kitchen and got a wet paper towel. Jan and I usually get upset with Jamie because when we scold him, he tries to run away instead of saying he's sorry. But with this new approach, I see his whole attitude changing. The other day, he was in the living room flipping through the pages of a book of animal photographs while I was in the kitchen. He came running in looking very worried and said, Daddy, I ripped a page. What should we do to fix it? I gave him tape. I think in the past he would have closed the book and hidden it. And then there are times when it's enough for a parent just to express her feelings strongly. Maria's story. Escape artist. We have a fenced yard, so sometimes I let Benjamin play outside while I'm working in the house. I keep an eye on him through the window. Yesterday I looked out and saw him climbing the fence. I've punished him several times for that very activity with a smack on the bottom and a timeout. There's a busy road on the other side, so it's very dangerous. This time, I yelled as loud as I could, I see a boy on a fence, and I'm afraid he'll get hurt. Benjamin jumped down and ran over to me. I hugged him and said, That made me very, very scared. He said, Sorry, Mommy. Sometimes you'll need an assortment of tools in combination. In this story, see if you can spot acknowledging feelings, expressing feelings strongly, giving choices, and taking action. Joanna's story, Slip Sliding Away. We were at an outdoor birthday party at a public mini golf course with a large group of seven-year-old boys. There was a dancing area with a live band. A light drizzle had made the dance floor slick in spite of the canopy covering it. Kids in our party realized that they could take a running start and go sliding across the wooden floor. What fun! Except that other people on the dance floor were clearly uncomfortable with this activity. Parents were grabbing their toddlers so they wouldn't get knocked down by these wild boys. Some elderly people were flinching in fear of being toppled. I looked to the parents of the birthday boy to lay down the law. After all, it was their party. They seemed reluctant to ruin their son's special day by chastising him. I felt too uncomfortable to ignore the mayhem, especially since my own son was participating. I yelled out in a loud voice, Hey, no sliding on the dance floor. I can see it's really fun. The problem is people are dancing here and they don't want to be knocked down. You can dance on the dance floor or slide somewhere else off the dance floor. Some of the kids stopped, including mine. A few kept running and sliding, including the birthday boy. I grabbed each of those kids by the arm and repeated the choice. 
They went running off to play elsewhere, and a few people on the dance floor mouthed, thank you. These boys weren't trying to terrorize anyone. They were just having some lively seven-year-old fun, oblivious to the needs of others. I acknowledged their feelings and let them know how other people felt without attacking their character. I gave them a choice, and I took action by stopping the ones who couldn't quite manage to stop themselves. Nobody's feelings were hurt, and the party proceeded with everyone in a merry mood. And then there are those trying times that call for the more elaborate activity of problem-solving. Joanna's story, Dirty Kid. Bath time had become an enormous battle. It was so unpleasant that I'd allowed the intervals between baths to grow from a few days to more than a week. How long could I stretch it before people started to notice? The sticking point was the washing of the hair. Five-year-old Zach hated it. I had tried humor, choices, giving information, and was now using the default option, force. I had to do it. Nobody else was sending their kid to kindergarten with sticky, smelly hair. I would start out trying to carefully rinse the shampoo out of Zach's hair, and then as he struggled and refused to cooperate in any way, Soapy water would get in his face and he would start to scream. Since he was already mad as a hornet, I'd just hang on to his slippery arm and dump more water on his head to finish the job. Much sputtering and more screaming would ensue. No Mother of the Year awards here. I decided to try problem solving. I sat down with Zach one evening and heaved a big sigh. Boy, you really don't like having your hair washed. If it was up to you, that would just never, ever happen. Yeah, the water blurs my face, and you get soap in my eyes. That sounds really unpleasant. No wonder you don't like it. I hate it. I can tell, and I hate fighting with you about it and making you sad and mad. The problem is, I'm supposed to send you to school with slightly clean hair. It's one of my jobs as a mom. We need ideas for how to do this better. I took out a piece of paper and wrote at the top, the problem with washing hair. Underneath, I entered Zach's main complaints, reading out loud as I wrote, water blurs face, soap in eyes. Then I wrote my complaint, sticky hair. And underneath that, I wrote solutions. We looked at each other. I figured I'd go for a lighthearted mood. Well, I guess you could wait for the rain and just go stand outside and get clean that way. I wrote my suggestion down with a little stick figure in the rain so Zach would have a picture to go along with the words. Zach got into the swing of things. I could be a fish. They don't mind being underwater. I wrote it down with a picture of a fish. Or I could be a cat. They never have to take baths. I wrote it. Luckily, fish and cats were both within my limited drawing ability. 
Zach was still on a roll. I could wait until I'm as old as Sam. He doesn't mind washing his hair. Sam was eight years old. I drew a stick figure with the number eight over his head. I was thinking that I'd better turn the conversation towards something a little more realistic, or it might be three long years before Zach's next bath. That would be really stretching it. I wrote down a suggestion that Zach could stand in the tub and bend over to dunk his hair in the water, then quickly put a towel around his head so the water didn't drip in his face. I wrote that Zach could rinse off by himself using the detachable shower head. Zach countered with the suggestion that I take him to the pool because he didn't mind water on his face at the pool. Hey, wait a minute. Why is that? Why don't you mind getting water in your face at a pool? Because I wear goggles in the pool. Oh, a breakthrough. What if we get some goggles for the bathtub? I wrote it down. We looked over our list. Standing out in the rain, got a check mark. All the other ideas were crossed out as being unrealistic or unpleasant, except for the goggles. That held promise. In the months that followed, all hair washing was done with goggles. Occasionally, water seeped through, but it seemed to be okay because even if the solution wasn't perfect, it was ours. What a relief. Problem solving doesn't always have to be a laborious, time-consuming, multi-step activity. Sometimes it's a simple shift in perspective. Instead of thinking, how can I control this child? We can think of our child as being on the same team and invite his help and participation. Julie's story, Dirty Mother. When Rashi was a newborn and Asher was three, it was a challenge to take care of my own essential needs. Taking a shower often didn't make the cut. One morning, Rashi was taking one of his unpredictable naps, and it struck me that with a little luck, I might be able to take a shower before he woke up. The problem was that if I left Asher unsupervised, he was sure to make a beeline for the crib and do something to wake the baby. I found Asher in the kitchen holding his magic mitts, plastic discs covered in Velcro that you strap on your hands and use to catch a fuzzy ball. Mommy, you throw the ball. Darn it. Asher had other ideas for this precious nap period. If I wanted to be clean, I was going to have to be skillful. Rashi was a light sleeper. Oh, you want to play with the magic mitts now? Throw it! I want to take a shower now. What should we do? Asher thought for a moment. I can get the tape player and listen to Sesame Street in the bathroom. I like that idea. Let's do it. I got my shower that morning. A clean victory. Here's another story where an attitude of problem solving led to a quick fix. Joanna's story, The Trouble with Trikes. It was one of those miserable, cold, rainy days that parents of young children dread. Outside, 
The unpaved driveway was a sea of mud. Luckily, two-and-a-half-year-old Danny was having a fine time riding his tricycle in the kitchen. The problem was that he only wanted to ride it unnervingly close to six-month-old Sam, who was on the floor trying to crawl. Dan, not so near the baby. Dan, you'll hurt his little fingers. Dan, I'm going to have to put the trike away if you keep doing that. Dan ignored my warnings and threats, supremely confident of his ability to pilot around his helpless brother. I didn't really want to put the trike away. It was keeping him happy and occupied. So instead of making good on my threats, I decided to try something new. I knew he was still too young for problem solving. He wasn't even talking much yet. But I felt like I had nothing to lose. I said, Danny, I can see you're enjoying riding your trike in the kitchen. And Sammy is enjoying watching you. That was the accepting feelings part of the formula. The problem is, I'm worried about his little fingers being hurt by the wheels. That was the describing the problem part. What should we do? We need an idea. That was the asking for solutions part. Danny gazed thoughtfully into the distance and pronounced, Danny, ride over here. He pushed his trike to the other side of the kitchen, away from his brother. I was astounded. My terrible two-year-old was perfectly willing to cooperate as long as he could be the idea man. After that incident, Danny have an idea became an oft-heard phrase in our house. And another problem-solving fix, not quite so quick. Joanna's story, Miss Liberty Pitches In. It wasn't until Danny was two years and eight months old that we had our first formal problem-solving session, complete with pencil and paper and a list of ideas posted with a magnet to the refrigerator door. I remember his exact age because I was so eager to have a child who could deposit bodily fluids in a potty that I was counting the months. Heck, I was counting the minutes. We talked about that feeling you get when the pee wants to come out and how hard it is to stop what you're doing and get to the bathroom, pull down your pants, and sit on the potty in time. We spent a few housebound winter days practicing, with Dan sitting on the potty at random intervals waiting for the magic to happen. Finally, it all came together. I had a boy who was toilet trained, my first ever. And then, a few weeks later, he lost interest. The bloom was off the rose. The potty was old news. He would clutch his crotch while playing and insist that he did not need to go to the bathroom. When he could hold it no longer, he would let loose a stream on the carpeted floor. Then he would run to the kitchen, drag the stool to the supply cabinet so he could reach the foam action carpet cleaner, and enthusiastically scrub away at the carpet. My toilet training triumph was crumbling before my eyes. I got out my pencil and paper and started in, reading aloud as I wrote. Dan does not like to stop playing to go to the bathroom. Mom does not like pee on the carpet. 
What are you doing? asked Dan. We need ideas for this problem, I announced. I wrote numbers one through four along the margin of the page. I was feeling hopeful. I looked at Dan. He looked back at me. I knew I was supposed to let the child go first, but this child wasn't saying anything. I realized I hadn't thought this through ahead of time. I didn't have anything creative or clever to offer, but I had started this, and I was going to go with the flow, even if it was just an ooze. I read aloud as I wrote, Number one, Mom will remind Dan in a friendly way to go to the bathroom. Now Dan was ready to jump in. Number two, Dan will clean the floor with carpet cleaner. I gritted my teeth and wrote it down without protest. Next, I offered. Number three, Dan can wear diapers if he doesn't want to pee in the potty. Dan was gazing vacantly around the room. His eyes lighted on a green plastic statue of Liberty souvenir I had purchased on one of my school trips. The little green man will tell me, pee-pee in the pot. I thought, oh, well, this is not working. But I forged ahead. Let's look at our list and see which ideas we like and which we don't like. Number one, the friendly reminder. Dan strongly objected. We crossed it out. Number two, Dan liked this one, but mom didn't. The carpet was getting too smelly. There's only so much action in that foam. We crossed it out. Number three, Dan was happy to go back to diapers, but mom objected to her own idea. We crossed it out. Number four, the little green man. It was all we had left. I had my doubts, but I managed to sound enthusiastic as we both put big check marks on number four. I posted the list on the refrigerator and waited for the next crotch-clutching incident. It happened at dinner time. Dan was squeezing and wiggling, making no move to get up. I picked up Miss Liberty, held it to his ear, and whispered, Pee-pee in the pot in my best raspy, bronze, statue-like voice. Dan took the statue and whispered something back. I never found out what. And then jumped up and went to the bathroom. For the next few months, I carried that little green man everywhere with me. It was my emissary to my son's bladder. No longer did I have to suffer the embarrassment of a teenaged grocery clerk telling me, excuse me, ma'am. Your son needs to go to the bathroom. Well, I shrugged helplessly. Now I could whip out the little green man and off we'd trot to the lavatory. There was one bit of social awkwardness when my Swedish friend spotted me clutching my statue. My, aren't we patriotic? Should I be carrying the Swedish flag? And while we're on the topic of toilet training, Here's a much shorter problem-solving session with my youngest son, Zach. As you will see, I didn't follow the correct protocol, accepting feelings, describing the problem, and asking for ideas. Nevertheless, we muddled through. Going natural. Frustrated mother. 
Zach, let's give the potty a try. Recalcitrant two-and-a-half-year-old. No. It could be fun to see if you can fill the pot with pee. Then you wouldn't have to wear a diaper. I'm not interested in that. You do it when we're outside. You know how to stop playing and pull down your pants and pee in the bushes. That's because I'm peeing on leaves. I like to pee on leaves. Okay, let's go get some leaves. We go outside and pick leaves. We bring them in and nestle the leaves into the potty. Zach immediately pulls down his pants and pees on the leaves. You did it! I told you! Fortunately, there is an endless free supply of fresh leaves in our yard. Potty training is on. Problem solving can take on endless variations. It can be an activity for two or a group effort. Sarah's story. Stop means go. My three kids get really wound up at five o'clock in the evening. They like to play this crazy game where they go hurtling through the house, chasing each other, and generally crashing into things. It hardly ever ends well. At first, they're all excited and happy, but my youngest, Mia, usually ends up getting hurt, or at least upset enough to feel like she's hurt. I've tried to stop them in the past. It's just so stressful waiting for the disaster and the tears. They always protest that they're having fun and everyone is laughing. Sure, until they're not. I tried the problem-solving approach. It was easier than I thought. Here's how it went. Me. You guys love chasing each other around the house. It's fun. The problem is I get upset because a lot of times someone ends up crying. I think we need some ideas for how you can have fun without anybody getting hurt or even scared. Mia. When I say stop, Jake and Sophia don't stop. Sophia, that's because you're laughing when you say stop. You just want to win all the time. Jake, yeah, you act like a baby. Mia, I'm not a baby, stupid head. Me, hey, no name calling. We're trying to think of ideas here. Maybe stop isn't a good word because sometimes people say stop when they're just playing and sometimes they say stop when they're scared or hurt. It can be confusing. Maybe we need a better word that means really stop. I'm not kidding around. Mia. She climbed up on a chair and put her finger in the air to make her pronouncement. I know. We can say pause the game. Sophia and Jake agreed. Stop will mean go. Pause the game will mean stop. They went back to running around. Whenever Mia started to feel a little bit overwhelmed, she wielded her new power. Pause the game. Every time she said it, all the children froze. They didn't seem to mind the new twist to the activity. Then she'd yell, play, and they'd go back to running. This is absolutely better than threats and ultimatums. It's teaching them how to play together and be more aware of each other's point of view.
Very important point. Show respect for the conflict. Don't minimize the problem. When there's ongoing conflict between kids, we get worn down. We just want it to go away. Stop already. It doesn't matter. But all our attempts to sweep the problem under the rug do not result in peace and harmony. We keep tripping over that lumpy rug. The battle over the TV remote control may seem petty to you. Who cares whether the kids watch a show where various objects are blown up in the name of science or a cartoon about a fruit-dwelling sponge creature? Keep in mind, this conflict matters just as much to your children as any dispute with a coworker, friend, or relative matters to you. Children need practice resolving their childish disputes so they can become grown-ups who can peacefully resolve their adult disputes. This is the work of childhood. Instead of saying, Oh, please, again with the remote? You're being silly. It's not worth fighting over. You can say, This is a difficult problem. Two children want to watch two different shows. You'll have to resist the urge to take sides. You always get your way. Just let your sister watch her cartoon so she doesn't make a fuss. Avoid the temptation to solve their problem for them. Let your brother watch his show today, and then you can watch yours tomorrow. But you can't just walk away, either. Sorry if you were hoping for that. Unless your kids are already experienced problem solvers, they'll still need your help and guidance. Very important point. Remove the disputed object temporarily. When the disputed object is in one child's hand, it will be hard for them to think clearly. The struggle will continue. You'll need to say, I'll put the remote control up on the shelf for now while we figure out what to do. I bet if we put our heads together, we can think of a solution that feels fair to both of you. Your next job is to listen and reflect back each child's perspective. You'll find yourself saying, Oh, so all day you've been looking forward to watching the explosion show. They're going to blow up a whole stack of watermelons and you don't want to miss it. Then you'll turn to your other child and reflect her feelings. Ah, so you feel like you never get to watch your cartoon. It's not fair. Your brother always grabs the remote, and you have to miss your sponge guy, and he's really funny. Back to the first child. I hear you saying that the sponge cartoon is on every day, sometimes twice a day, and your show is only on once a week. This is your only chance to see it. Then you'll say, hmm, what can we do so that both of you get to see the show you like? Should we take turns? Should we make a schedule and have certain days for each person to decide? What do you guys think will work? Your kids will be pleased with themselves when they come up with their own plan. What's more, they'll be learning to fight less and negotiate more when they have conflicts in the future. The Trouble with Rewards What about rewards, you ask? If you didn't have time for problem-solving, couldn't you offer a reward? That's a positive solution, isn't it? 
and positive is good, right? Let's take a moment to think about how it feels to be offered a reward in return for a change in behavior. Imagine that you've been turning out some delicious late-night dinners for your family on your night to cook. You're pretty pleased with yourself. Between work, shopping, cleaning, and supervising kids, it's remarkable that the family is getting healthy, home-cooked meals instead of takeout pizza. But your spouse isn't happy and says to you, I need you to make dinner earlier on weeknights so I can get to bed earlier. Listen, I'm going to offer you a reward. For every five nights that you get dinner on the table by 6 p.m., I'll take you out to a restaurant of your choice. I made a sticker chart so I can track your successes. What's wrong with this scenario? Why do we suddenly have the urge to serve dinner at midnight? Burnt. Well, first of all, does your spouse even care about your feelings? Does he not recognize the effort you put into all this food production? Does he realize how difficult it would be to get it all done earlier? And what if you get dinner on the table early four nights in a row and then mess up on the fifth? Do you have to start from square one because of a single misstep? Is it even worth the effort? What about that reward? Maybe a new car would be a better incentive. Maybe you should be getting rewards for all the other things you do around the house. A new pair of boots for folding the laundry. A flat screen TV for cleaning the toilet. Rewards have many pitfalls. They don't address the cause of the problem. They are used to manipulate the other person rather than work with her, which can lead to resentment. They are subject to inflation, and they have a dark side. A reward is offered with an implied threat. If you don't do what I say, you'll miss out on something good. Most people would prefer a partner who is willing to work with them to solve a problem. Someone who might say, Gee, I really appreciate all these delicious meals. My problem is, I'm frustrated with the late nights. I feel like I'm not getting enough sleep. Is there anything we can do to get dinner on the table earlier? What could I do to help make that happen? Let's think of some ideas. Here's a report from the front lines of a reward gone bad. Sarah's story. Gum grievance. I had a bunch of tedious errands to run and three young children to drag along. I promised them each a stick of chewing gum once they got to the grocery store if they could cooperate at the bank and post office. The kids were excited. Yes, gum! But my youngest and liveliest daughter, Mia, could not control herself. She managed to sit quietly at the drive through bank, happily watching the vacuum tube suck up the deposit slips. But by the time we got to the post office, she was out of her car seat and crawling around the van causing mayhem. No gum for her. The well-behaved siblings got their treats, and Mia cried and raged all the way through the grocery shopping. It was a miserable day. What went wrong? The corollary to, 
You can have this wonderful thing if you do as I say is. You can't have this wonderful thing if you don't do as I say. The reward slips its mask and reveals itself as a punishment in disguise. And more important, it doesn't help a little girl stay in a car seat. If Sarah had talked to her kids about how boring errands are and how difficult it is to stay belted in for a long time, then challenged them to come up with ideas for how to amuse themselves and one another while imprisoned in their car seats, they might have had more success. They could have come up with games, songs, or stories to make the car ride more bearable. And what's more, they would have been learning important skills for dealing with adverse circumstances. More time-consuming than offering a stick of gum, but more useful in the long run. The same is true for siblings fighting, toilet training, good grades in school, or eating broccoli. No promise of reward will help a child learn how to get along with a younger brother, figure out when his bladder is full, learn addition facts, or enjoy healthy food. If this sounds overly idealistic to you, consider the latest research on motivation. An eye-opening study found that when people are offered large monetary rewards to complete a challenge, their creativity and engagement in the task plummets. Rewards help people perform well on some very simple mechanical tasks, but as soon as they needed cognitive skills, rewards interfered with their ability to function. These surprising results have been replicated in study after study. It turns out that the three facts that motivate people most strongly are a sense of autonomy, the drive to be self-directed, mastery, the intrinsic drive to develop competence, and purpose, a sense that our actions are meaningful and have value. Anna complained. So we're not supposed to use any kind of incentive ever? You're making my life more difficult. I'm not saying you shouldn't use incentives. Just use them for your kids the way you would use them for yourself. You might tell yourself, after I get through this sink full of dirty pots and pans, I'm going to sit down with the paper and a nice cup of tea. It helps to give yourself something to look forward to when faced with an unpleasant task. In the same spirit, you might tell your children, Let's think of a good snack we can have on the ride home. That way we can look forward to getting into the car, even though it's sad to leave your friend's house. The difference is that you're not saying, if you get in the car, then I'll give you a treat. You're planning your exit strategy together as a team. You can let them know that fun activities await them when chores are finished. As soon as we get our teeth brushed, we can have bedtime stories. As soon as the blocks are put away, we can go to the park. You've avoided the unpleasant and manipulative, if you do this, then I'll give you that statement and replaced it with information. The trouble with timeouts. Tony had her hand in the air. Okay, so no punishments and no rewards. What I want to know is, how do you feel about timeouts? Are you going to take that away from us too? 
I hated to be the eternal naysayer. I took a deep breath and shrugged sadly. Tony threw up her hands in mock despair. Usually when people ask me what I think of timeouts, they want to know what they're doing wrong. Why is this technique not working for them? It doesn't seem to lead to improved behavior, and it's difficult to enforce. How do you make a child stay in a timeout chair? My answer is that the reason timeouts aren't working for you is that timeouts don't work. The main weakness of the timeout is that it doesn't address the problem. Let's say your son shoves his little sister away from his blocks, and you grab him by the shoulder and rush him to the timeout chair. What do you think he'll be saying to himself as he sits in that chair? We'd like to imagine that he's thinking, gee, this chair time is helping me realize that I should show a lot more love and tenderness to my dear sister. After all, we do have shared genetic material. As the older child, I should learn to be more patient, even when she's irritating me. Unfortunately, it's more likely that his thoughts will run along the lines of, It's not fair. I hate her. She pushed me first. She's always ruining everything. Mom always takes her side. Or he may be thinking, I'm mean to my sister. I'm a bad person. And that's if you can get him to stay in the chair in the first place. If our intent is to foster a better relationship between siblings, time out is not the answer. So what can you do? First, you can comfort your daughter and express your feelings strongly to your son. I don't like to see people pushed, even when you're angry. You can invite your son to make amends if the mood is right. Ella is crying. How can we make her feel better? Can you find her a toy, or do you think she'd like a pretzel? Once the drama is over, you can have a conversation about how difficult it is to build with blocks when a little sister is around. A big brother needs ideas for what to do next time so he won't end up hurting his sister. Maybe he can play with blocks in his room. Maybe he can make a tower for her to knock down. Maybe he can have a special word that he uses when he needs you to come and help very quickly. Any of these solutions will help him to see himself as a responsible older brother who can coexist peacefully with the little sister. This is not to say that you won't sometimes have to separate a child from a situation that is overwhelming him. If you really want to use the phrase time out in a positive way, you can say, we need a timeout so nobody gets hurt. Quick, Thomas, to the kitchen. Jenna, to the living room. You may even say, I'm getting frustrated. I need a timeout. I'm going to my bedroom for a few minutes to calm down. This kind of timeout is intended to protect, not to punish. It's a way of letting our children know that sometimes we need to take a break before we can solve a problem. I watched my neighbor use this technique with her three-year-old daughter, who would often become overstimulated when playing with other children and behave roughly with the smaller kids. Her mom would say warmly, Jackie, come over here and sit with me for a little while. We need some time out. 
she'd sit with her arm comfortingly around her daughter for a few minutes, then ask her if she thought she was ready to go back to playing. There's a very different feeling to that kind of timeout. It doesn't say, I'm banishing you because you were bad. The message here is, I'm on your side. It's not easy to play with a bunch of kids. Let's take a break together. Some people call this a time in. Taking a break with a child and refreshing the sense of connection between the two of you. Michael's story. Sad sister. Jamie and Kara get into a lot of conflicts, which almost always end up with Kara crying. Of course, she's only two and Jamie is four, so there's really no contest. Jan and I used to remind him constantly that Kara is just a baby and he needs to be patient with her. Jamie doesn't want to hear it. I can see it in his face even if he doesn't say anything. No fair, you always take her side. We also were giving him timeouts for being rough with her. That didn't make things better either, but it was all we had. Now that we've been using the problem-solving approach, I see a real change in Jamie. They still have fights, but when Kara cries, I say to Jamie, Oh no, Kara is sad. We need an idea to make her feel better. It's hard to believe, but it actually transforms him. He gets very serious. I think she needs her teddy bear to hug. Or, can we give her some apple slices with cinnamon? He's really thinking about how to make his sister happy. And he's more patient with her in general. At first, I thought the no punishment thing was a bit over the top, but this is the better way. Very important point. You don't have to wait for a problem to occur in order to use problem solving. When possible, plan ahead. Here's a story that involves prescient parenting, solving a problem before it happens. When we know we're headed for trouble, like the proverbial Boy Scout, we can be prepared. We don't have to wait for disaster to strike. When you plan ahead with your children, so much the better. Tony managed to turn a dreaded ordeal into a well-choreographed success with some creative, preventative problem-solving. Tony's story. The opposite of winging it. My in-laws were having a family reunion, and they expected us to be there. They don't have any memory of what it's like to have young children. They actually insisted it would be a nice vacation for us. The thought of five and a half hours on a plane with my kids was daunting. I had to prepare them if we were going to survive. I lined up the kitchen chairs so they could practice walking down a narrow aisle. I gave each of them a backpack to carry, and I walked behind them and announced when we reached our row. Then I had them sit in chairs, one behind the other, and stuff their packs under the seats. I told them to kick the seat in front of them and notice how annoying it felt, especially while trying to draw or read. We practiced sitting in the chairs, keeping our feet off the chairs in front of us. We repeated the whole routine every day for three days before the flight. Then we made a list of things you can do while stuck in a seat. It included reading, drawing, and a game called A Million Questions. They didn't like the idea of only 20 questions. I took them to the library, and they each picked out a book for me to read, and to the dollar store to pick out their own magic coloring books, activity books, and more food. 
They each packed a bag full of loot for the trip. I knew I would need some surprises up my sleeve, so I also collected a bunch of things to pull out during the flight. I stuffed my pockets with stickers, finger puppets, and little packets of goldfish crackers. The flight went smoothly. The kids didn't kick the seats or throw their toys, and they were excited about all the new things in their backpacks. The flight attendant actually complimented me on how well-behaved my kids were. If she only knew. The minute we got to my in-law's house, Jenna threw up. Turned out she had a stomach virus. My husband and I spent the entire vacation taking turns in the hotel room. I think we'll wait a few years before our next family trip. And then there are those parenting moments when everything falls apart. You didn't know the bridge was out, and you're on track heading at full speed for the ravine. The train wreck is unavoidable. Creating a family atmosphere of seeking solutions rather than inventing punishments will still stand you in good stead in the long run. The Cliffhanger Five-year-old Zach had a fit at bedtime when I finished reading a chapter and told the kids it was time for sleep. He wasn't used to chapter books and had a hard time accepting that we couldn't finish the whole book in one sitting. But he still wanted to join in on his older brother's story time. It's a 200-page book, I protested. I can't finish it in one night. And besides, Sammy's already asleep. But it's a cliffhanger, he screamed. How could I leave him like this, not knowing the end to the story? In a fit of rage, he grabbed an empty plastic seltzer bottle, you can see how neat my house is, and flung it at my head. His aim was true. The lovely story time ended with me yelling, I will never read you a story again. Well, my husband carried Zach hysterically sobbing off to his bedroom, away from his raving mother. There was just no salvaging the situation. I was furious. Is this supposed to be part of motherhood? Having projectiles lobbed at my head? Good thing it was plastic, not glass. Good thing I'm not a single mom right now. Problem solving? Punishment? Forget about it. Survival is all we're striving for here. The next night at dinner, I said, I don't know what to do. I want to read more of the book, but I don't want screaming, and I don't want bottles thrown at me. My husband laid down the law. Everyone has to promise to go to bed without fuss when the chapter is over. I'm very dubious about extracting promises from children. Apparently, Zach was just as reluctant to commit to a promise. What if it's a cliffhanger? His older brothers had taught him that word, and he relished it. Ten-year-old Dan had an idea. I know. We can make predictions, like in school. Zach was intrigued. What's a prediction? His two brothers launched into a spirited explanation with many examples. Later that night, after I finished reading the agreed-upon chapter, I closed the book with a sense of trepidation. What will happen this time? Would Zach hold it together, or are we in for another explosion? Zach sat straight up and said, Okay, now it's time for predictions. I predict 
that they will lock Lassie up even more tightly, but she will still escape and go back to her family. Then he trotted off to bed. I was truly amazed at both his equanimity and his accuracy. There's no telling what solution kids will come up with when a problem is put in their hands. When the solution is their own, it will usually work for them. And when you have multiple kids, you have multiple problem solvers instead of just multiple problems. When we use problem solving in place of punishment, we are truly modeling the attitude we want our kids to take toward conflict in their lives, not I'm a bad kid who doesn't deserve a bedtime story. Not, I'm a failure as a mom because I screamed at my kid. But rather, how can I fix my mistake? How can I make things work better? What should I try next time? The larger message is, when there's conflict between us, we don't need to put our energy into fighting each other we can combine forces to search for a solution that respects the needs of all parties. The child is an active participant in solving his problems. This will stand him in good stead in the years to come. Punishment has a short shelf life. Little kids grow quickly. It's difficult to physically punish a child who is larger and stronger than you are. As children become more independent, it becomes harder to enforce punishments. How do you ground a teenager or take away his screen privileges without becoming a prisoner of your own punishment? This cooperative approach to conflict will grow with your child. As youngsters mature, their ability to problem-solve grows with them. When your children are out in the world, you won't be able to keep them safe by force. The most powerful tool you can wield is their sense of connection to you. The fact that you are willing to consider their feelings and solicit their opinions will keep their hearts and minds open to your feelings and opinions. Reminder. Tools for resolving conflict. Number one. Express your feelings. Strongly. Hey, I don't like to see people being pushed. Number two. Show your child how to make amends. Your sister got scared on top of the slide. Let's do something to make her feel better. Do you want to offer her some pretzels? Do you think she'd like to play with your sand bucket? Number three, offer a choice. We're going to give the slide a rest for now. I can see you're in no mood to wait for a turn. You can swing on the swings or you can play in the sandbox. You decide. Number four, take action without insult. We're heading home. We'll try the playground another day. I'm too worried about children getting hurt right now. Number five, try problem solving. Step one, acknowledge your child's feelings. I can see that you don't like your hand held in the parking lot. It makes your fingers feel squeezed. Step two, describe the problem. The problem is, I worry about cars hitting children in the parking lot. Step three, ask for ideas. 
We need some ideas so we can go back to the park and have a good time without people getting mad or scared. What can we do? Step 4. Decide which ideas you both like. So, you like the idea of holding onto my sleeve and leading me to the playground. Let's circle that one. Step 5. Try out your solutions. Here we are at the parking lot. Grab my sleeve and show me which way to go. Very important points. If nothing is working, you may have to reconsider your basic expectations. Show respect for the conflict. Don't minimize the problem. Remove the disputed object temporarily. You don't have to wait for a problem to occur in order to use problem solving. When possible, plan ahead.